Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. When you do share your story, though, it comes at such a high cost. I don't know which is worse, not speaking about it or speaking about it. At first, I thought our family was going to become closer. After the sins of the Amish aired, we could finally, finally stop pretending like these things didn't happen. Like, my mom left my dad, and we talked about um, some of these things in court, so some of it's documented, but it's almost like the physical... This was always okay to talk about. It was always okay to go to court and say, well, my dad didn't always let us eat because he had to eat first and then we could get the leftovers and my dad shot at my brothers with nail guns and us with anything lying around. The judge listened to all of that and my dad didn't face any consequences except losing access to his kids. But you can't talk about the sexual abuse. Excuse me, people. We can't talk about the sexual abuse. Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions or organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. If you're only listening and you want to see our faces, go to my YouTube channel at Cults to Consciousness. You can join in on the conversation. You can like, subscribe, hit the bell so you don't miss any episodes. And it just really means a lot that you're willing to support me in this cause for advocating for these people who are coming on and telling their stories. So today's guest, I saw her on the show we've talked about in the previous episode called Sins of the Amish. She had a really heartbreaking story, a very important story. I wanted to get into more of that, hear more from her. So we'll get into what all of that means. But for now, thank you so much for joining us, Meg de la Grange Belfon. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. And I'm just hoping that whatever we talk about today can help somebody else have either a greater awareness of what's going on, or if they've been in the same background or a similar background, they can maybe have a little bit more language for what they've been through, because I think that's that's a big struggle when you've been in a cult. Yeah. It's difficult to find the right language to describe what you've been through, and I'm still looking for that the right words sometimes. Right. It's hard because, and we've talked about this a little bit off camera, when it's your reality, you don't really know any different. And so, like you were saying, you don't really have the language for it because that's just how things are. You know, you may know that doesn't feel right or it feels off or uncomfortable, but you just think that that's how it is. And so you tend to go with it until usually there's a breaking point or an emotional low or something happens, an event in your life that wakes you up to what's going on and you realize that you can't do it anymore. So good. There were so many things that were going through my mind, just even as you were saying that, like so many moments, almost like I was watching a movie of my Mm. life kind of flash before my eyes. Um, I actually would have been an adult before I became aware of what my body was telling me. Mm. So now I can look back and understand why I was having a stomach ache or why, you know, what my body was telling me. But as a child, I was so shut off and just disconnected from myself. Um, Yeah. 
I think it was as an adult where I started doing the work of just even knowing what my emotions were. I, I'll never forget a moment where the first therapist that I saw after kind of attempting suicide, um, somebody intervened and I had to go to therapy. It wasn't a choice in the beginning. And the therapist handed me like a sheet of emotions and asked me what I was feeling. And I literally couldn't tell her. And I didn't even know what all of them meant. And I was about mm. 25 years old at the time. Wow. That was new for me. And so now I can look at a Now one of the like little personal um, accomplishes accomplishments that I can have is to look at an emotion range and be able to say, I feel this today, or I feel a mixture of these. And for me, I'm a mixed box of, of plain cult experiences. I was born old order Amish in an old order Amish home to my parents, Eli and Anna Troyer. My given name at birth was Anna. I was my mom's namesake. So when I grew up, I was little Anna and she was big Anna and both of us hated that. <laughs> um, but when I was a young girl, my parents were excommunicated from the old order Amish because they were kind of seekers themselves and they joined what was known as the Black Bumper Mennonites, which meant that really by literal definition, everything had to be black, painted black, um, including the bumper of your car. So everything had to be black. Three of my uncles are Amish bishops. So I have family that are still old order Amish. I grew up though, kind of cycling through, like going from old order Amish with no running water, um, a pump in the kitchen, an outhouse out back, that kind of a lifestyle that you've heard about. Um, and to black bumper Mennonites where we really just looked Amish and really still lived very, very plain, but you know, we could drive a car. So my parents both had to learn how to drive. And my father was very abusive and only got worse as he got older. So I think it was just traumatic for my mom to learn how to drive in that circumstance where, you know, he was so critical and my my growing up years are marked with him, you know, berating her for how she drove. But mm. then um, from there, my parents eventually found themselves in a cult uh, that's a Mennonite spinoff called a charity fellowship. And so and through that, they um, one of the earmarks of that movement is abusing children physically just with the train up a child materials, oh, some, of yeah. the, um, some of the Bill Gothic materials as well, but like just controlling your women and controlling your children, even more than the old order Amish. Wow. And so for me, the, some of the old order Amish memories I have, even though I was sexually abused at a young age, by a family member and the, those memories are very fuzzy and um, going into the Mennonites and there was some sexual abuse there just, you know, it just seemed like girls were just the product or the, like just the property mm -hmm. of boys, like any boy, you know, and if you allowed a boy to touch you or if you got abused somehow, it was always your fault. But I went from that 
And it just got worse as I got older um, because the, the charity fellowship cult was a lot. And maybe, maybe I was more aware. So for me personally, um, I think it was the worst thing that I was a part of personally. That's so interesting. And I never thought that we were going to have a crossover like this. So we did a whole series on the Shiny Happy People documentary, which focuses on Bill Gothard, the IBLP. We even did a whole episode on To Train Up a Child. And someone actually mentioned in the comments on one of our Amish videos they thought that Bill Gothard got some of his playbook from the Amish. And I was like, that's interesting. I don't know if that tracks. But to see that they were cross-pollinating with that book, with Bill Gothard teachings, that's so interesting. And it, it makes sense. Yeah, right? I've really enjoyed hearing. Um, I, I watched Shiny Happy People and found even more language for what you know my experience was. Um, I didn't finish it yet because... Those things are a little tough for me. Mm -hmm. It was tough for me to be filmed for Sins of the Amish because sitting in front of a camera and ha having someone ask you to speak about what you've been through, it's like, you know, I have a thousand things to choose from. Which one do I choose? Mm -hmm. And then after filming a lot, um, they cut the episode that was going to focus on our family story because they said it was too dark for TV, wow. which is fine. They, they focused really just on a small part of our interviews. They focused more on the dynamic between my sister and I and our, and our mom. And that's a very important piece of, you know, how mothers are victims of abuse and then they also become abusive. And, you know, for my mom, my dad began dating her when she was 16 and he was 28. And so she'd been under his control for a very long time. And in a lot of ways, well, my, my parents were both, I think my dad was probably stuck at the age of four emotionally and mentally. Wow. And my mom was probably stuck at the age of six, which I was able to understand because I had a, this kind of relationship with my mom where sometimes I was able to verbalize something for her better than she could verbalize herself mm -hmm. because we were so linked maybe because she had me when she was still a teenager and her and I maybe kind of grew up together a little bit. Right. Um, both being victims of my dad's anger and, but in his mind, he was much less abusive than his father who he witnessed at when he was four years old his parents being in a fight. Uh, my grass mommy and my grass daddy were in a fight and my grass mommy lunged at my grass daddy with a knife and he picked her up and threw her across the room. And he says, Oh wow. And my dad says he was four at the time and still remembers the way his mom's body sounded as it hit the wall. So, <sighs> you know, he grew up in a very violent home. His sister lost her leg. Um, in the field with on a piece of machinery. And my mom grew up in a, um, what would it be considered a good home, but the, the horse whip was used to keep her and her siblings in line. She had a brother that molested a sister. There was someone in their community who murdered a member of her family. Uh, when she was six years old, her mom woke her up and said, there's, you know, a fire, um, and next door, her cousin burned to death because somebody in the community was angry 
over the men in the church wanting to change the Ortnung to allow rubber tires instead of the tires that were, you know, I guess the metal tires. So it was a whole petty argument and somebody got killed over it. So that was my mom's childhood. I think there was just a lot of, for me, I've been able to make more sense of my childhood, understanding my parents' childhood, Mm -hmm. childhoods. And, you know, they would, my dad would always let us know that we had life so good compared to him. Um, I don't think a day went by where he didn't tell us how good we have it. And then he would sit at the kitchen table at night and talk about how life wasn't worth living. So I grew up with not only the physical violence, and we can talk a little bit more about that, um, and the sexual abuse, but also just the constant suicidal ideation because he was mentally ill and just really troubled. Yeah. Wow, that's a lot to unpack. And I guess what I'm wondering is how much of what both of your parents went through do you think is, maybe specific is the wrong word, but in part due to being a part of this group, the Old Order Amish, and how much of it do you think is just their own um, their own issues or their own families? I would say the majority of their issues come from just being in the environment that they were in, that the environment is so full of constant brainwashing and control and gaslighting. That thing on the wall, it's not green, it's blue, you're crazy. And you hear it over and over and over till you think the thing on the wall is the color that they say it is and not the color that you think it is. You know, that's just a silly example. That's like, you didn't see something happen. You were, you know, you were imagining that. It's taken me many years as an adult to figure out what actually did happen. Was that a dream? Did that actually happen? Mm-hmm. Some memories are clear and some are just, you know, I just have big blank spaces in my memory. But yeah, I think for me, I've become aware of the domestic violence cycle, understanding what that is and re-entering it as an adult with my dad, even, which is... Uh, can't believe that happened, but now I am aware. It's all of this, all of these like toxic and dysfunctional systems that are just, you know, nurtured and, and they just, they just, this, this, this cult just keeps it going. You know, mm-hmm. if there, there isn't awareness and there isn't, there, there's, there was a time in my life where I thought, okay, as long as there's not abuse, as long as, you know, Education, you know, people are allowed to become educated as long as there's sex education, as long as, mm-hmm. you know, you could be Amish and be, have a good life because there's some really good memories that I have and things that I value from the way that I grew up, I guess, very few. But now I sometimes, the more I understand, the more I think like, can you become healthy in an unhealthy pattern, in an unhealthy structure and something that is systemically dysfunctional and patriarchal and toxic. I don't know. Yeah. And that's a tricky one. And we have that thought experiment with many of the cults that we talk about where people will often say, but there's so much good in X, Y, or Z church and they help so many people and people find comfort in it. And I, it's hard for me to really... It's hard to accept like, yeah, there are good things when the bad is just overwhelming, even if the people who are in it can't see 
what's really going on, especially if it's psychologically and they just don't understand the programs that are running in the back of their brains to coerce them and manipulate them into acting and behaving in a certain way and thinking in a certain way. So yeah, I totally understand that. It's hard to look at something objectively and say, yeah, that could be good. But there's all these other things that are making it not so, that are kind of tainting the waters. And even if you just have a drop of poison in a a bucket of water, it's still poisoned. (laughs) So it's really hard to separate those things. It is. I I tried for a long time, I think, this, but maybe when you come out of a cult, you try to reconcile. Just you're just trying to reconcile certain things. Like you're trying Mm -hmm. to find the good in some things, and which is a good thing. But when I was able to start finding good pieces that I hold on to. But it's like the domestic abuse cycle when you go through the honeymoon phase and you cling to that and justify all of the bad stuff that happens, all of the broken promises, because you just hold on to, well, they did say sorry the last time or they did, or it seemed like they wanted to change. There's just no justifying that kind of horrific behavior. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the environment. I would love for you to talk about some of the memories that you do have, whether they are good memories or bad memories, anything that you're comfortable sharing. Yeah, um, I think some of my first memories are just around the curiosity that I had. And even though I wasn't exposed to things, there were things that I had inside of me. Now I know that's what they were. Um, But I, I remember being left at the wherever the the group had gathered on Sunday to have um, Gme, which is like a Sunday church that happens every two weeks, at mm-hmm. least in the Amish circle that I was in. And my parents forgot me. I was around the age of two. So when I, the fact that I can remember this, my mom always found it just astounding. When my parents found me, I guess, eventually, and on the way home, they were fighting about it. And from that point on, I believed that I was the source of my parents' dysfunction in their marriage Mm -hmm. because I was so young. I was so young and I was the oldest. So I was the first child. Mm -hmm. I think one of the other memories that's kind of like a defining moment is I was, my mom says I was 18 months old, so I wasn't even two yet. And I don't know why I have these really clear, very, like, memories of being very small. And then there's, like, large chunks missing when I got older. My mom was out in the garden. She had, like, a, we had a an acre large garden of where she would plant green beans and tomatoes and peas and carrots and corn and just anything that you would need to live on for the next, you know, once at the end of summer, you would can it and put it away and you would have um, canned goods that you would live on. We didn't go to the grocery store mm-hmm. um, really for very much. So I remember just being in the in a dark space and reaching up to try to find a cup because I guess I'd gotten out of the bed and I was thirsty. And I remember hearing like a lot of loud noise and my mom at the same time or around the same in my memory, there's this door opens and it's all bright in the room and she screams and she's really, I thought she was really angry at me. Now I know she was just scared. Um, she came to grab me up. But what had happened is she was canning 
and she had the table was full of jars, glass jars. And when I was looking for a drink of water and I was searching for a cup, I knocked some of the jars down. And so when she opened the door, her baby was standing in a sea of glass. But the thing is that I didn't take a step. So when she got to me, there, I wasn't hurt. So the fact that she, that's a really clear memory for her and a clear memory for me is just odd, right? And then I think, um, so I think it's like, I don't know what, I think to me that's like a good memory that I didn't get hurt, right? And then um, I think some of the bad memories for me, I much more remember my the abuse of my siblings than I do my abuse. And I think the thing that haunts me or keeps me awake at night is the the fact that I didn't save them or stop it from happening. And then it wasn't just my siblings, but like animals. So, and this is a tough one, but I think there's just this pattern of abuse when it comes to my dad and disrespect for anything or like just his need to control anything that was smaller or helpless so when our dog had puppies, for example, and I was such an animal lover and loved, you know, loved the dogs we had. Sometimes they just mysteriously went missing. But then before long, another stray would wander around and we'd have another dog in the family. But um, at one point, I'll, I know he had unique ways of getting rid of puppies that he didn't want. But the one time that I was probably the most upset about, but didn't say anything because I wouldn't have been allowed to was when he put a bunch of puppies in a burlap sack and threw them in the Creek (gasps) to drown them. Oh no. Yeah. And, um, I think things like that, I think because I wasn't able to save, you know, my siblings, or things that happened one time we would butcher in the fall and in the spring every year. So we were always, you know, butchering an animal and then putting away the meat. And to me, there was nothing wrong with that if it was done respectfully. Right. And most of the time it was, but because my dad was just had this weird, you know, um, it helps me to watch criminal minds because it helps me maybe understand a little bit about, why my dad did some of the things that he did or or maybe like what else might have been going on the psychology behind it the psychology behind it because he hammered nails into the head of an animal until it died one time before we butchered it oh my gosh it was just so inhumane you know so my dad was just very inhumane one time i heard him you know one of the many times he was beating one of my brothers he my brother was crying too much because there was an, a right amount to cry or not cry when you're getting beat. Otherwise, you will get beat more. And for us, we always got beat with our clothes off. So we were naked, which was even more mm. dehumanizing and painful. And he was beating my brother and he started laughing like this maniacal laughter. And he said, I could do this all day. I've got all day. I'm going to tie you up and I can do this all day. And for days after that, my brother didn't really get off the couch. He just kind of laid around. And now I know he almost died. You know, I think so many of my siblings almost died or should have died. And 
that was during the time where my parents had fully bought into the teaching that you must break a child's will. Mm -hmm. And so that will breaking is something that did get mentioned in Sins of the Amish, where it was like uh, really like a ritual when a child reached the age of 18 months, uh, any, anytime they were over a year old, um, this weird manipulative game would start and then they would um, beat that child until, you know, their bodies would be black and blue. And then there was a sexual abuse that my younger siblings went through. Um, I was sexually abused as well, but that's not what keeps me up at night. It's, it's my siblings not protecting them and not saving them and not doing something. Um, that one particular time that my brother, my dad was laughing and he said he could do it all day. Um, that was one of the very few times where I ran upstairs to the room right above it. And I pushed a really large dresser over on the floor. And I was like 10 years old at the time. So I don't know how I had the human strength to do it. But at that time, the beating stopped and my dad came and found me. And at the moment, I didn't even care if he killed me. I just didn't want my brother to keep suffering. And I don't even remember what he did to me. Um, But there were so many times where I did nothing. So like that one time I did something, I don't even know if it, you know, it's just, I think that's the hardest thing for me is what I heard and saw my siblings go through. All, there were eight of us. So I have seven siblings, seven younger siblings. Yeah. I can't even imagine the the guilt you must have felt and this pressure on you and this weight on your shoulders. And I hope that you've been able to understand now that that wasn't your job to keep them safe, even though you were able to in some instances. That's just that never should have been on you to begin with. And that just shows how empathetic you are and caring you are that you are willing to take a beating instead of one of your siblings. But I hope you know that 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 wasn't on you and none of it was your fault. You know, that's been said to me before, but it's not a reality that <laughs> I don't think it's not something that I can um, internalize or, or make true for yourself. I've maybe let go of some of that guilt for sure. Um but I just, it's, to me, it's more of a reality that I think maybe I have come to ex- more of, a, of an acceptance with it. Maybe that's the better. Um, and maybe forgive myself. But yeah, I hear what you're trying to say. And I don't think anyone, if it were, if it's somebody else feeling guilty for what their siblings went through and they weren't you know, they didn't stop it or weren't able to. Um, I would never tell them you should feel guilty about that. It's just something that I do, you know? Yeah, yeah I can understand that. 
Wow, that's so hard. And just to know that you are going through that as well as being abused yourself, I just can't imagine what that must have been like for you. For a long time, I I got excommunicated around the age of 21 from the upbringing or the, the cult that we had currently been in. I did spend a lot of time after leaving everything just almost pretending like my past didn't exist mm-hmm. and kind of putting just a veil over it. And it's only been in recent years that I have talked about my past or even been vocal about where I come from. And I had a coach that told me I should be proud of where I come from, you know, even though there's bad in it, like you were born Amish. That's something just like, just own it. And um, so I began doing that and I began owning my heritage. And that was a really empowering thing to like, you know, maybe own my whole story. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, then it means facing it or, yeah, facing it. It means when you own your story, it also means that you face everything that happened, the good stuff, the bad stuff, the stuff that you um, have a hard time forgiving yourself for. It means that you just, you know, you count, you, 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 you just owning it. It's, it's, it's work and it doesn't happen overnight. I think it takes time. And for me, it takes it's taken a lot of time. When I think of my childhood, some of the stories, so many of the things that happen involve my siblings. And sometimes it, it's hard for me to talk about that because I feel like they have their own stories that need mm-hmm. to be told in their own way when they're ready to tell their story. So there's some things that I'll shy away from talking about, but things that happened that I witnessed, like, I don't know, instruments of torture, if you will, Um, everything from nail guns to belts and switches off of trees, which is a train up your child type of punishment. Oh, the pipes, the pipes that they would buy at the store, the little plumbing pipes to be this with. I think one thing that happened as I got older, though, is that I, I'm pretty sure I was probably always a strong-willed child because my father has told me that now that I'm an adult, um, which I enjoy. So when I got older, I started definitely testing the boundaries, you know, and I actually became bolder in the sense of like, you know, I don't care what you do to me. Oh, just hit me harder. Mm. When I got older, it was a pride thing for me to take a beating without whimpering. Wow. And I got really good at staying silent and just taking anything you did to me and not letting you break my spirit. And one thing that my dad said 
um, in the recent years after I re-entered, um, we can talk about that, re-entering a domestic violence cycle. Like, well, that's what I recognized it at, at was. He told me I was never able to break you. It was this moment where he was verbally being abusive, very verbally abusive. And, and, and what a rebellious person I was, although I was always pretty much a good girl. I really followed the rules. But when he said I was never able to break you and you were just, you know, impossible, I don't think my dad's ever given me a greater compliment. Yeah. So that's something that I love that nobody was able to break me. But when, as a teen, I think I got more verbal, a bit more, not a lot more. I guess one thing that I did to be rebellious is by the time I was a teenager, we had tapes and cassette tapes. And so I would record songs secretly on these cassette tapes. My dad would find them and destroy them, and mm. punish me, and I would just keep making more. It was like, you couldn't break my spirit and you couldn't take my music from me. Mm-hmm. That was a thing for me when I was when I was a teen, I guess. And I also made a plan to run away. I knew I would survive. I knew where my gross mommy kept her cash, her wad of cash in her drawer. Gender roles, of course, are very defined for us when we're growing up this way. So from a young age, I understood that it's the man's job to work and it's the woman's job to stay at home. And my dad would berate my mom every time she spent too much on anything, even if it was something that we needed. So what my mom and my gross mommy would do would quilt, quilt, and I'm sure they would turn over the majority of what they made quilting quilts to their husbands. However, my grandma, and I found this out, my gross mommy is my grandma. Gross mommy had a drawer and behind clothes and under layers and all this. I don't know how I found it. But I was a teenager when I found her secret roll of cash. And so I knew that it was there. And in my mind, when I planned to run away, I knew I wouldn't take all of it. And I knew I would pay her back. But when I saw that, I saw freedom. And so Mm -hmm. I think my first interaction with money was that it could be freedom. It could mean that I could run away from home, escape this life. Um, Because at that point, I wanted to escape. Life was just hard and not in the sense that I had to get up at 6 a.m. every morning and milk the family cow. I enjoyed that part. The hard was, you know, really, I think the abuse that my siblings are going through and the abuse that I was, I wasn't aware nearly to the extent that my mom was being abused, but just the abuse that that was constantly present, constantly there, constantly feeling like you can't say anything, just a, you could cut the air with a knife. The tension is so thick, but it would come and go. There would be times where it would be worse and times where it would be better. And then there was the sexual abuse that I just only encountered with mostly people outside the family. So it was more my younger siblings that were being abused by other siblings. But all of that, I just, I wanted out I think there was just a sense of me just wanting out. One time I met the neighbor next door. She was having a yard sale. And I mean, when I say next door, I mean, probably at least a half a mile to a mile away because we lived on a large property of like 20 acres. Wow. And there was acreage around us. We lived in this farming community in Michigan at the time. But I met this lady and I remember her name was Colleen. I would say that name to myself while I went to sleep, Colleen. 
Colleen and I would plan out in my mind how one night I'm going to get out. I'm going to take some of the money, some of Breast Mommy's money, and I'm going to find my way to Colleen's house and I'm going to knock on the door and I'm going to say, Colleen, can you help me get a bus ticket? It wouldn't be enough to go to her house and stay there because my dad would find me. Hello. Yeah. But I would need to have her help me get away. And I, the, I met her one time, but Colleen had such a sweet smile on her face that I knew that she would help me. And it makes me emotional to think that I had this whole imaginary relationship this with this stranger in my mind that how somebody was going to help. Um, but then we moved about a year later, we moved to a new community in North Carolina. And within two years, my parents had arranged for me to be married to somebody because in those circles, they call it courtship and betrothal, but really it's arranged marriage. A therapist helped me realize that yeah, because the parents decide on who you're going to marry. Before we get into your arranged marriage, because I definitely want to hear about that. I'm curious about what your perception was of the outside world when you were planning to run away. How much were you exposed to? Did you know how it worked in the outside world? Were you able to go out and see different things? So that's such a good question. Um, mostly I was pretty terrified of the outside world. I remember a time at some point I heard about child protective services. I don't even know how somebody else's children had been taken away, I think because their family had been reported. And I think from my parents made sure that I knew that the children in, that go into foster care and get taken away from their parents are abused and raped every day. Not that that wasn't happening in my home too, but I guess it was worse if it was happening with a stranger. Wow. You know, so when I was younger, you know, we wouldn't dare talk about anything that was happening at home. We didn't dare mention it. Plus, I had cousins that where the abuse was way worse, they said. My uncle broke my aunt's arm, and he raped all of his daughters. And at least my dad didn't rape me, at least when I was older, right? So it was, you know, we had it good. Remember, we were told every day how good we had it. And so I think there was a lot of times when the outside world to me was much more dangerous than the world that I lived in, in my mind. I think as a teenager, I just thought, even if it is worse, I don't know, I just no longer cared about how bad it was that I had heard out there. I just didn't want to be at home anymore. Yeah. And I thought now that I was older, I could fend for myself. Um, and I could get a job somewhere and I could pay my bills. I had no idea that you can't actually live on your own until you're 18. I just mm -hmm. thought by the time I was 16, I thought I could get a job somewhere. Again, it was, I felt like once I realized that money gets you things and money became the symbol of freedom, I thought if I could have some money, I could do anything and I could make the life maybe that I wanted. I'm not sure what all was going in my mind. Um, when I was younger. But yeah, my view of the outside world was that it was dangerous, even though when I was young, it's ironic to think of that now, because even I just had this random memory of having a sleepover with my cousins, probably for the hour or two before we fell asleep, I really had to pee. But the outhouse was outside. And normally we would have like a little 
pot in the bedroom or whatever, but um, there just wasn't one there. And my uncle, I could hear the adults awake talking people. They were visiting each other. And because I did not want to walk past my uncle, who was a man, because how you walked could um, entice a man to you the wrong way. I did not want to walk past my uncle in my nightie to go outside to the bathroom. So I laid there and forced myself to keep my pee in. And I thought I could hold it all night. But of course, I I wet the bed. And I was probably... Mm -hmm. Oh, nine at the time and it was so embarrassing but um that was that was something that, that would just it wasn't an option to go to the bathroom because i would have to walk past my uncle it's just staggering the the level of abuse that's going on in these communities where something so basic as using the restroom is not safe and it's just really eye-opening when you tell stories like that to recognize just how something so simple, a basic part of life, can be weaponized against you as a child. And I'm trying to figure out, I've been talking to other former Amish, and it seems like it seems like everybody knows this abuse is going on. You knew about your cousins, they probably knew about you and your siblings, but Nobody says anything and everyone just allows it to continue. In your opinion, why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I've asked myself because why didn't I stop my siblings' abuse? Um, so my cousins and I would know things, but we were, you know, children or very young. Um, it's just the way it is. Like that was a, a, ger- a German phrase, a German phrase that it's just the way it is. It's just the way we do things. Um, my mom, I just think the same kind of denial that you, you begin to practice denial as a young person, as a child, and you practice it and you grow up and you just are in denial. Yeah. It's like, it's like this brainwashing and gaslighting that's happening all the time makes you think you're living in some kind of um righteous environment where you know we have attained really the the high we, we've because we are Anabaptists and our bloodline is Anabaptists and um, we can trace ourselves all the way back to the people that died for their faith. So it's almost like we are a holy bloodline and we've attained you know maybe the highest level of spirituality, I guess. And so some of this stuff shouldn't happen, but, you know, that's where, you know, it, it did happen. And I think there's, for my mom, she, oh, she had a lot of fear. There's this verse in the Bible, I think, somewhere that talks about a sin that most sin is not unto death, but but there is a sin that is unto death. And because it doesn't say what that sin is, you live in fear of perhaps committing the sin that is unto death, which would mean you're damned for eternity. All of that fear just keeps you silent because you don't want to commit a sin. You don't, even though there's sin being committed. Um, I, I, it's, it's hard to explain. It doesn't make sense. 
Yeah, it's interesting you talking about the bloodline and how you guys are the chosen ones. And it makes a lot more sense now as far as if you guys are at the top of the top and this stuff is happening, imagine if you weren't in that community. Imagine the people who aren't the chosen ones. So you just have to kind of go along with it. It just feels like an almost parallel reality because I know that they preach about how sexual abuse is wrong and these certain things that are going on but yet it's so common Well, they don't really preach it though oh really or i never heard it so in my circle i wouldn't have heard it so people didn't even understand that that was wrong i mean so i should back up like yes that's not completely correct i, I had to attend like a talk that was put on by the charity fellowship um, it was distributing tapes, so attending means like I was listening to the tapes of how women should dress and act and behave. And, you know, your elbows shouldn't show because those look like boobs. Um, what? I just have to check. You shouldn't wear flip-flops because the, the way the flip-flop goes between your two toes looks like a, a thong. Uh, it's gosh. tempting. Um, there were so many... Things I learned through that tape series that I sat and listened to with my mom about, you know, never leaving my hair down around my brothers. My hair would definitely um, entice my father and my brothers to look at me the wrong way. Oh. And by wrong way, you know, they mean, you know, really, it's all this like, if something happens to you, it's your fault. That's how I that's something that I always knew. I was only able to one time keep somebody from doing what they wanted to me when I was crawling through um, a hay maze in a barn with some a uh, bunch of kids. And there was a boy behind me. His name was Lester. And Lester the monster. And he... Mm -hmm kept trying to grope me from behind in the hay mail. And at one point, I remember just having the right, like, just knowing that the next time he touches me, I'm going to just kick him as hard as I can. So I did. And we came out of that hay mail. Our moms were talking and nobody said a word. He, I knew I hurt him and I knew, and he didn't try to uh, mess with me again. Yeah. Well, that was like the only time I ever like fought back, but like to the question of why doesn't somebody do something? I think as women, we always feel like it's our fault. And so mm. I think something happens when somebody starts abusing you, you actually, your body shuts down. Yeah. Like I was able to have like, okay, I'm going to kick this boy. But at no other time when something was happening, to me was i able to do that i would just take it the freeze response it's a freeze response right yeah thank you that's the word i'm looking for i almost think that that's sometimes why adults and people don't no one stops abuse that's going on they have a freeze response they don't know what to do maybe it's not that bad maybe that child was asking for it maybe which is just insane no child is asking to be no woman asks to be raped no girl no boy um you know my god like nobody asks to be treated like that yeah it's maybe a partially a freeze response and i really just don't have a good answer for why no one um 
and and you don't want to report anything because the church is supposed to handle it. You're mm -hmm. supposed to tell the church leaders. So when my brother admitted to me that he had my sister from the time that she was a baby, her memory serves that she kind of starts remembering it around the age of six, but it's happened way before that. But that's her story to tell when she wants to, or if she wants to. And my brother, he admitted to raping his younger brothers. And recently my brother called me and said, I was at the doctor and there's all these issues that I have because there's all this scarring because of how badly I was and I didn't oh know and he's trying to process it. And, um, but when, when my brother came and told me that he was very remorseful at the time. And so I thought that was going to be the end of it. You know, I was 18. So I was morally, I was obligated to report it, even though I did not really did not know that at the time, but I was obligated to report it. And so I immediately told my parents, because in, in my culture, that is how you report something. You tell your parents and they told the ministers actually, and um, he was talked to and that I thought at the time was the end of it. It wasn't the end of it. My brother continued to rape his younger siblings mm. until he left home. And now, you know, it's difficult because I chose not to speak about it until the sins of the Amish so all this time, you know, he moves on, he lives his life, he gets married, he has a beautiful baby girl. And I'm just thinking, oh, my God, what if he touches his baby girl? <sighs> and then he's killed. And there's this part of me that thought, like, so this is weird, because he was also like, I was very close to him. And he was uh, like my best friend as once we got older. But then, you know, I find out from my siblings later even after he died what he had continued to do to them and so then I decide I'm going to talk about this on sins of the Amish I'm going to talk about what went you know what happened in my family and because it's the right thing to do I mean it's like everybody died everybody cried everybody cried when my brother died but who cried for my little sister who cried for my brothers that were who cried for them, yeah. no one, right? And so I already have all this guilt that I didn't report this at 18. You know, I think that's where a lot of guilt comes from is like, I'm 18 and I hear about this. I don't report it. And then it continues to happen and it can, you know, and my younger siblings are damaged year after year after year. The abuse continues, the harm continues after I leave the home at the age of 19, uh, you know, the abuse continues and continues and continues. And when I finally did speak about it on Sins of the Amish, now no one in my family speaks to me except my sisters, which is fine. But like, you are so punished if you talk about that. And I think there's this part of, of self-preservation that comes into play when you don't want to talk about things that happen because you'll be shut off from everybody probably, or you'll be, you know, you're just trying to get attention. Um, you, you don't know your place or you uh, really, I've been told so many times in my life that I just do things for attention. Oh. You know, from my dad, who will always say that, to people that I consider friends. That's just Meg. She's just trying to get attention and 
At first, I thought our family was going to become closer. After the sins of the Amish aired, we could finally, finally stop pretending like these things didn't happen. Like, my mom left my dad, and we talked about um, some of these things in court, so some of it's documented, but it's almost like the physical was always okay to talk about. It was always okay to go to court and say, well, my dad um, didn't always let us eat because he had to eat first and then we could get the leftovers and my dad shot at my brothers with nail guns and us with anything lying around and it was okay to talk about all of that. The judge listened to all of that and then my dad didn't face any consequences except losing access to his kids. And then, um, and then, but you can't talk about the sexual Excuse me, people. We can't talk about the sexual abuse. Wow. Especially if you're in it, you can't talk about it. We don't talk about it. It's not what we do. And if you're somebody who's angry about it and talks about it, um, you're not forgiving. You're bitter. And oh, you you know what my, my brother has said to my younger sister that she needs to be delivered from the demons that are inside of her. Really, what happened when I spoke up on Sins of the Amish is I, I lost what I thought, you know, uh, you know, that I had maybe some shred of family. It did come with a very high cost. It comes with such a high cost. There are so, when I was 17, um, I didn't have a friend that hadn't been sexually abused. I thought I had two friends that hadn't been sexually abused, but they just hadn't talked about it. Years later, they would talk about it and admit that their brother had, a, you know, one was abused by a brother, another one, something else happened. Will they be interviewed and tell their story? First of all, they don't have to, right? So no one has to share their story. In fact, you have a right to keep your story all to yourself and completely private. Mm -hmm. When you do share your story, though, it comes at such a high cost. I don't know which is worst, almost like not speaking about it or speaking about it. They both come at such a high cost, right? It, because you've been abused. And so whether you talk about it or whether you don't, it comes at a very high cost. Um, I don't I have less answers than I ever have in my life about these things. And I just have to thank you for coming on today because same with what you're saying is I know that's really difficult and there may be repercussions. And if I may offer a little bit of comfort, I know that by telling your story, you are giving voice to so many people who aren't able to or aren't in a place to or aren't even ready to accept what's happened to them. Um, from similar backgrounds and situations. So I just really applaud you for being brave and willing to come on and talk about this. How are you feeling? I'm okay. Okay. Thank you again for talking about your childhood. I, I know how difficult that is. I know that you wanted to speak about your arranged marriage, and I'm sure there's a lot of people who are interested in hearing about that as well. So I'll just give you the floor to talk about whatever it is you'd like to express. So as I mentioned, this we were in this cult called Charity Fellowship around the time when um, I was in my teens. And in that circle, you would approach a young man would go to the father 
of the girl he was interested in and talk to the parents and really have a relationship with the parents for a while, they would decide whether that young man could marry their daughter or not. But there's a few cases where a parent would go to the parents of a son, of a young man and say, you know, hey, we would like these two to be a match, kind of like more of your traditional matchmaking type of arranged marriage type of thing. Some people in that circle do choose each other. Um, I know of a few cases and one case where a couple's very happily married, where it didn't follow this path of like the parents putting the two people together. But a lot of the time, two parents would bring two people young people together. And then on our first date with me, I was taken out to eat. That never happens. So something's up. And I was handed a note and I was told that this young man would like to enter a courtship with me. On our very first date, um, we were, we went to out to eat again. That never happens with both sets of parents and they handed a piece of paper that was a contract to us things that we would agree to things we would always agree to be chaperoned we would always agree to certain things that we would agree to in our relationship you know i think at that age now i look back and i'm like just a piece of paper but in I took it very seriously. And in my mind, it was a binding contract. So we signed it on the first date. Um, we were so awkward together. I think that defines our relationship as being very awkward together. It's fine. Um, and five months later, we were married. Two weeks before the wedding happened, I was so sick I couldn't sleep all night and I was throwing up and I told my mom not that night but I had told my mom earlier that he had done things to me even though I told him to stop mm. so it would take me a long time to realize that I married somebody who I did not feel safe with and um, you know I think when two people are in love and they mess around it's fun and it's fine and it's great i think if you are a young girl and you feel bound by contract to marry this person and they get handsy with you and you don't feel comfortable with it and it's definitely not a turn on and you ask this person to stop and they don't stop it's sexual yeah and so i married someone who sexually abused me it isn't easy to say that uh, partly because i think he and i have um developed a very respectful relationship now because the best thing that came out of our marriage was a beautiful baby girl and there are many, many things that um, he has done in his adulthood to be responsible for things that he's done. But that's neither here nor there. Why do I feel the need to do that right now? Um, to like, I have a need to sometimes say both the good and the bad of someone, you know, someone can have made mistakes and then, um, 
Yeah. Anyway, so I was married for eight years to the person that I was in an arranged marriage with. And then um, there was a point in time where I think due to the, the unfaithfulness in the marriage, the dysfunction, the addiction, I realized that if I didn't leave, and it, but I had this sense of urgency inside of me, if I didn't leave, my daughter, the same thing was going to happen to her. So I had to leave for her sake. Yeah. And I had, so this had to stop, right? So, so I left and I got a divorce and then I was a single mom for seven years. And in that seven year stretch, I did a lot more therapy. And at one point I reconnected with my dad because a therapist told me that I should forgive my dad and I, that it would be possible for me to have a relationship with him because at the time I did not. I had testified against him in court when I was 25 years old um, because my mama had left with the clothes on her back and um, I didn't ever want her to ever, ever, ever go back to him. So I fought really hard and I and I flew to Michigan and I testified against him in court. All of that stuff happened. And so then that awakened something inside of me. I think then I was able to fight for my daughter once I realized that the relationship I was in was just not. So then, but then as a single mom for seven years, there was this period of two years time. And I wrote about this on my blog. So a lot of people were very inspired by it. I decided to reconnect with my dad. And in the beginning, it was nice. Because there was this part of me that always um, wanted to be daddy's little girl. Loved my dad. Recognized that a lot of the creativity that I have inside of me is kind of because of my crazy father. And so... Um, and there were things that he taught me when he taught, when I was young, he taught me how to pour concrete and put shingles on a roof. And he took me to work sometimes with all the boys. And those were the best days of my life. When my dad just let me be one of the boys, I had a lot of responsibility as a young girl. So that was one of those things. So when I reconnected with him as an adult, it's like, this is going to be great, right? Like, but within after about a year and i was careful the whole time i went into having a relation uh, reconnecting with him i had some reservations for good reason because about a year into reconnecting with him one day he just called me he was in a bad mood he just began verbally abusing me mm. and bringing up things that had happened and i pretty at first i went into freeze mode and then I found my voice and I said, dad, this is not how, can't let you talk to me like this, dad. And he kept going. So I hung up the phone, but then he apologized. And at one point he apologized for whacking me across the face and knocking me out when I was 15 years old. So I thought, wow, he's never apologized before. Okay. Well, you know, I did, I had no idea I was, had re-entered a domestic abuse cycle that this was a honeymoon phase. And then he was sorry. So I invited him to my house for Christmas, had a beautiful 
Christmas with him. It was difficult for my mom to watch me reconnecting with my dad. I think on mm-hmm. some level she felt betrayed, although she hasn't said that to me. I'm sure that must be how it felt. I don't know, because now she doesn't talk to me either, but I hope that doesn't. I think it's just part of her own process that she's going through. But then there came a time after I had married my now husband, I married the kindest man on earth. Mm. My dad showed up at my house, my new house that I shared with my husband and our family. He showed up unannounced and he proceeded to just insult, verbally insult my husband and say things that I'm not going to repeat because I'm not going to give him that. He just said awful things. And thankfully he wasn't physically violent, but at that time I realized it could be only a matter of time that he could become violent because my brother who lived with him started dating a girl that he didn't like. So he took my brother's dog and beat almost to death. My brother came home and his favorite dog was laying beaten by my dad. So I knew that my dad is still physically violent. He, it is not beneath him. He has a gun. He's threatened to shoot everybody in our family. My dad is violent. He's a violent man. And so I found out that forgiving him was more about releasing myself from ever needing to have anything to do with him ever again. I could stop holding on to things and just just let it go. Just let it go. Just, just, and so I haven't spoken to him since. Um, And I realized that I had just re-entered this cycle, but I didn't ever have to enter another cycle with him ever again. Yeah. I think that's something that a lot of survivors go through, whether it's domestic or even the cult dynamics between groups is they wire it in you to be empathetic and caring and want to fix things and that's basically how we're wired is to fix ourselves. You know, they tell you that you're broken and that they're the answer. And so you're self-policing and making yourself feel awful or you want to help people and it's just innate. And so a lot of times people who have left situations feel the need to fix the abuser or fix whoever it is that's causing them pain and forgive them and, and benefit of the doubt and all of that. But sometimes it's the stronger option and the healthier option to set boundaries and just to cut them out because it can be better for your mental health. It, I mean, usually is, and it's, it feels like a failure. And at least I'm speaking from my own experience. Sometimes it can feel like you're failing at not being the forgiving person that you hoped that you would be according to the outside world, what they view as forgiveness or what your cult views as forgiveness, like forgive and forget. It's not my thing. So I know sometimes it can feel like you're not doing the right thing by cutting them out, but it's such a strong place to be when you recognize that if keeping that person in your life is actively harming you, it's better to not have them in your life. Easier said than done, of course. Much easier said than done because you carry a lot of guilt. Um, yeah. Or you can carry a lot of guilt. I've I've vacillated between having guilt over it and then just having like, whew, like, thank God. 
<laughs> I don't have to see this person ever again if I don't want to. Like, yeah. Um, and it's not even like I hate them. Oh my gosh! Sometimes I, when I think about my dad, I have the fondest outlook of him. If that even makes sense. Same yeah. thing with my mom. There were so many ways that my mom was always my best friend, and I always thought that. I always believed that if my sister could just talk to her about how she really felt like she did on the documentary, that my mom would just really hear her mm -hmm. and that we could heal as moms and daughters, that we could heal and be stronger together as the women in our family. Like in my mind, that's how it could all work. And then, we're still living. We still have life. We still have, we still wake up and breathe every day. And I think that there's just other people in my family that are just in their own process and that's okay. Mm -hmm. You really have to realize that everybody deserves their own process, their own, their, each person is just on their own journey I guess yeah <sighs> yeah well with that I'd like to know where you're at in your journey and how you're doing now and how you've been able to regulate and and find happiness and peace I paint mm. um that's probably where I find the most pieces I paint and I knew that I wanted to be an artist for as long as I could remember even though I wasn't really exposed to any artists and I don't even know how this was something that I wanted. But when I was five, I asked my, my dad for a set of paints because it was something that you needed for school. There was like this little school project mm. and you had to, you could, you could color the tree with pencil colors, or if you had paints, you could paint the tree. And so I asked my dad for paints because I wanted to paint the tree. And, um, you know, it was a waste of money, so I never got the paints. But when I was older, I had gone home to take care of my family after they were cut out of a car in an accident that was really terrible. Mm. And I was taking care of my younger siblings for six weeks, gone back home, been around my father, very triggering, all of that stuff. But I went and bought a set of paints to paint with them. And while I was painting, I was having so much fun. I went, when I went home, I bought more paints and I ended up painting even with, you know, not even eating or drinking. I painted for weeks, months on end, and I've been painting ever since. So um, I've been painting for the past 15 years now. Wow. I love um, creating it's just so, so I think that's one of the biggest things that brings me peace and help, has helped me process things. Because one thing that I love about a canvas is that, especially a canvas that I'll have painted on before, and then I, I don't like whatever's happening there. So I paint over it and I paint again. And what I love is the process and how certain layers are just so ugly and so don't make sense. And things that I don't even like. So I'm going to cover it up and do something new on top of it. But you can't ever cover it up because the layers remain there. And it's like, um, I learned that 
on some very famous paintings and artists, they have the ability to now take an x-ray of artwork and see every single layer that's there. And so you just see all these layers and all of these layers make up a beautiful masterpiece, a beautiful piece of art. And so it helps me to make sense of what I've been through and to appreciate who I am today. I, I am me today because of every layer of my story. Yeah. So I love that. And I, my gosh, I love my husband to death. Mm -hmm. um, I married a wonderful man, a Caribbean man um, from a different race, a different culture three years ago. And uh, from day one, I was just so safe with him. Um, I found out that love could be 100% safe. That doesn't mean it's always easy or we don't disagree or there's something that's hard or, you know, when we have a blended family between us of five children and there's challenges that come with that, obviously, you know, um, just our kids even grieving the way that life used to be and then, you know, um, coming together. But there's just, uh, we, we always look for a way to honor each other every day with our kids. I get to be, um, hopefully, the kind of parent that I would have wished for. Mm. So, um, and when I make a mistake and I get upset at them, I apologize. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. That's on me. It's not your fault that I got upset. I just really, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to work on myself. I remember this time I was, this is something that brings me joy now. Um, not what I, there was this time where I snapped at my daughter. We were at the hair salon and I snapped at her and I realized, wow, I'm not taking care of myself well. Mm. And so I'll never forget being in the car with her later and apologizing and saying, and then I said to her, um, I don't want to just tell you sorry, because I felt like I was starting to see a pattern of me like snapping easily. I was like, um, I'm going to work on myself. So a week later, I had gone back to therapy and this was actually after filming Sins of the Amish. And I just noticed myself kind of spiraling and I went back into therapy. And so I told my daughter in the car, I'm in therapy because I, mom's going to work on herself. Um, it is not your fault that I snappy with you last week. That is not your fault. It is my fault. And I am going to work on me. So some of the things that just even bring me joy is like, okay, I am, I want to take radical responsibility for myself as a parent. And I get to do that. I get the privilege. Like, you know, and, and someday if my parent, if my kid, any of our kids, my biological daughter or my, or my four bonus kids, if, if they're in therapy and they come to me and they tell me something that really hurt them, then I get to take responsibility for what I did wrong. And I get to work on repairing what I did wrong in that relationship you know, hello, that's, that's, so I think for me now, the ownership that I get to take over my life, whether, you know, and, and the, just, just the life that I've created that I, that I get to live now is just such a privilege to me. I love to travel. Um, I've been to 
well over 20 countries. Mm. Um, I get to paint, I get to write, I get to, I really love this life that I'm living. That's amazing. I'm an Airbnb super host. I love decorating spaces and making safe, warm, comfortable spaces that people can come stay in. Um, so I love being an, a host on Airbnb. I mean, it's just, I really love this life that I'm living right now. Oh my gosh. I was literally about to cry. I was so choked up when you were talking about your parenting. I'm just so proud of you for breaking that cycle and really doing the work and and stopping that abuse and giving your kids a safe space and you didn't even have that modeled for you yet you you know what it should feel like and it's just it's just really amazing i was seriously like don't cry shalice don't cry don't cry it's fine (laughs) it's like i'm just happy tears i'm just so happy for you and your family and where you're at now it's truly amazing and inspirational thank you oh so good i'm just i'm really grateful it makes me emotional too because um Lord, it is not easy to be a parent. I have teenagers now and it's not easy, but um, it's just such a privilege. It is just such a privilege to be a parent and to be the kind of parent that, and just to work. I think it it takes a lot of work on ourselves as parents to to really show up the way we need to for our kids. I, I remember my, my uh, my bonus daughter, something was happening, and I don't remember. I think they were they 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 were they had heard something in school about finances and and whatnot. I don't even remember, but it was something like that. It was during the school year, and she's like, "Well, I never asked to be here," and I was like, "She's right. She didn't ask to be here. Like children are brought into this yeah. world by." <laughs> other parents, other adults. And so it's on us to, you know, raise them and equip them and give them freedom and like empower them. And so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's, that's, that's probably my greatest privilege now. Wow. It's just amazing that you're able to have that perspective and that you're able to see the joy in it and the responsibility in it. It's just so beautiful to witness. And with that, I want to get your Linda Listen moment. If you want to go inspirational, if you want to do a sassy statement like the viral video with the toddler goes, whatever you prefer. Oh, boy. So this one's this one's fun. There's a lot of things I could say. But listen, Linda, controlling people, brainwashing people and kids is not Christ-like. And listen, Linda, you can't break my soul. Yes. Unbreakable. (laughs) I love it. So good. Do you have any other things that you wanted to mention that we didn't get to before we sign off? Gosh, not really. Um, These things always kind of go different ways. Like you don't expect this or that to come up and then it does. But um, there's always something that later I'm going to wish I would have brought up. But um, I, I don't even... I don't paint as much as I want to right now, but, and it's not anything that's ever been even in the least sustainable, but if there's anything that I think I want to be known for is not the abuse 
I don't want to be known as the victim. I don't want to mm-hmm. be known as the, the the labels or the whatever the the hurt that I've been through. I want to be known as this woman who is always curious, always thinking outside of the box and creative, and how I've gone from being born into a world without color to living in full color and expressing myself the way I want to and living the life that I want to and loving the man that I want to and loving Mm -hmm. the way that I want to and just painting and coloring my world with these colors that I've learned to paint in and wearing red, the forbidden color of red, you know, that's, I I am a coloring spirit. I get to decide who I am now. And I think if anything, like that's that's who I want to be known as. I am a coloring spirit. I paint my world with color. You couldn't break me. You couldn't take color away from me. Um, I just am who I am. So yeah. if you want to share my like art website, Yes, drop it. Let us know. What is it? I would be motivated to like actually release a new body of work probably. (laughs) What's the website? We'll put it in the description too. It's um, coloringspirit.com. Perfect. So good. So good. And if you have a painting that you do and you want to promote it, let me know and I'll put it up on the community page and share your work. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. It's it's the work that you're doing is meaningful. I know it's not easy. I know it's probably exhausting. I know it comes with a cost, what you're doing and the stories, the space that you're creating for these stories to be heard. And so I really honor you and respect you for the work that you are doing. It's just really important. Thank you. That really means a lot. Yeah, it it can be hard some days. Some days are harder than others, but I just know how important this is. And I can see the changes being made and people's lives are being changed because of it. I get messages every day and it's so rewarding and it just motivates me to keep going and pushing through even when I'm having a hard time. So, But it wouldn't be possible without people such as yourself willing to come on and be brave and vulnerable because, wow, that's where so much of the healing comes from is people being able to recognize you and for what you've gone through and how you've become this incredible warrior, colorful warrior, and also being able to see themselves in you is such a powerful thing. So thank you again for coming on. It was so wonderful to talk to you. You're welcome. Amazing. Well, guys, thanks so much for joining in with us and sticking around till the end. Let us know if you made it to the end. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can like, share, comment, all of that boosts the algorithm. If you'd like to become a patron, we're going to start doing monthly Q&As live just for patrons only. So you can become a patron at patreon.com slash cults to consciousness. My newest patron, Cecily, thank you so much. It means a lot that you're willing to support. And if you like this video, I'll put two videos here that you can check out that are similar that you may like. And until next time, follow your highest excitement, be conscious and be well. Thanks for listening. 
If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with our visibility. You can also find me on social media at Colts to Consciousness or reach out by email at Colts to Consciousness at gmail.com.